0: It's two weeks until Christmas. How are your preparations coming along? Okay. I got a few laughs, uncomfortable laughs. A couple people were like, oh, great. I'm doing fine. All right. Have you got your shopping done? All right. Some of you have. Most of us have not. Maybe it's not reasonable to expect that with two long weeks to go that we would have all of our shopping done. So let me ask an easier question. Is your house decorated yet? Yes. Okay, I saw a few shaking the head no. I saw lots of yes. Some of you guys have had your tree up for weeks already. That's how it is in the Sueza household. I'm telling you, November 1st. Amber had our living room looking like a scene from a Hallmark movie, you guys. It is beautiful. It's really, really nice. She's done a great job decorating it. And she couldn't wait for the calendar to turn so that she could get it all ready. Now, I'm thankful that my wife has stepped out of the room. She's going upstairs to get ready for uh, growth track in just a moment. Because I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret that I do not want her to know. Okay? So nobody spill the tea to her later when you see her. Every year we have this conversation in my household. She's like, you know, tomorrow's November 1st. We need to go up to the storage unit. We need to drag out all the Christmas decorations and just don't plan anything that morning and afternoon because we're going to be decorating. And I'm always like, you know, it doesn't really matter to me whether the house gets decorated or not. I mean, it's nice if it is, sure, but I don't really care. And you know, babe, if you want to skip it, that's cool with me. It's not a big deal at all. Every single year we go through this. But I realized this year, I actually love it. (laughs) I really do. And I noticed that because Amber was not at home. She was gone for a week, right? She went to Florida a week before I did. So I was at home all by myself. And every single day... I got excited to flip on all the lights and the tree and everything like that because the ambiance and atmosphere was so nice. It really put me in the Christmas spirit. So I'm glad that she goes through all the work of decorating each year. Don't tell her I'm glad that she goes through the work of decorating each year. Okay. All right. All right. I know there's one group in the room that is definitely ready for Christmas. It's the Filipinos. There is nobody on planet Earth that loves Christmas more than Filipino folk. Now, I didn't know this before I moved to Canada, but I did learn it eventually. If you're not aware, the Filipino Christmas season traditionally runs for every month that ends in burr. (laughs) So I just, I just want you to track with me here. December. Yes, of course. November, even Canadians celebrate in November, October. Yes. September, many people in the Filipino culture start preparing their Christmas celebrations. I love it, man. I'm here for it for sure. Regardless of whether you started back in September or you're hoping to get started this week, Christmas always requires preparation. Mm. You can't just like show up on December 25th and expect there to be dinner and family knowing when to show up and gifts and all that. No, it always takes a bit of preparation in order to pull off. That's true today. And it was equally true at the very first Christmas as well. Christmas always requires preparation. If you read the nativity story as it's recorded in the Bible, you're going to find all of these little hints and details that reveal to us that God has been preparing the Christmas story for thousands of years before the birth of Jesus even happened. It's incredible. And so in this teaching series that we're doing called Christmas before Christ, we're looking at these Old Testament passages that are quoted in the nativity story in which God shows us, you guys, I've been preparing for the birth of my son for so very long. Now the reason I think this is important is that when you go to an event maybe a party or something like that or if you know you see like something that somebody has created with their hands a craftsman or something like that the more preparation you know they put into it the more you appreciate the final product are you with me like if you go to a party and they've done an amazing job with the food and the decorations and the music is just right and there's the right number of people there it's like i appreciate how much work must have gone into pulling all of this off when you know how much effort it took you appreciate it all the more. When you know how much effort it took for God to bring about the very first Christmas, I believe it'll help you to love Christmas more than you ever have before. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew chapter number two, we're going to read verses one to six, very famous section of the nativity story. This is what the scripture tells us. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. In verse 3, the scriptures tell us King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. Why would King Herod be deeply disturbed? Well, put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. He's the king of the Jews. And some random guys walked into his palace and said, hey, we heard there's a new king that's just been born. Let's meet him. And King Herod is like, yeah, let's go meet him, shall we? So he was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet Micah wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah for a ruler will come from you who will shepherd, be the shepherd for my people, Israel. So these wise men, they saw a star somehow or another, they connected the dots and believed that it was the star of the new King that was born in Israel. So they traveled from the ancient lands of uh, Persia, which is like Iran, that area of the Middle East, they travel. But once they get to Israel, they don't know exactly where to go, which city, which house, where do we go? go. They can't figure it out. So they stroll into Herod's palace. They say the Messiah has been born. The new King of Israel is here. And so Herod is like, yeah, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Isn't there a prophecy about that? I think somewhere somebody had predicted where the the Messiah was going to be born. So he calls together the religious leaders of his day. And he says, guys, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they're like... That's easy. Everybody knows that. Micah, the prophet, says that he's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. And so they pull out the scroll of Micah. Micah was an Old Testament prophet. He wrote about seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. This is a long time before in ancient Israel's history. And uh, he, they pull out his scroll and they read this passage. I'm going to read you the actual prophecy because it's a bit expanded from what we saw in the book of Mark. So here's what Micah predicted seven hundred years before the birth. Of Christ, this is what he said. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Now, this is part of the way that we know that this is a messianic prophecy because he says, I'm gonna predict to you that there will come a very important ruler, a baby that's gonna be born, but his origins are from the distant past. That's not normal, okay? When um, little Cairo was born, they weren't like, ooh, his origins are from distant past. No, they were like, his origins were about nine months ago, okay? So when they say he that there is going to be a ruler that's going to come and his origins are from the distant past. This is cueing us. It's keying us into the fact that this is a special ruler and he will come from you, Bethlehem, on my behalf. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength and in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Then his people will live undisturbed for he will be highly honored around the world and he will be the source of peace. Okay, so I told you Micah was writing like 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. It's a very interesting period in ancient Israel's history. Uh, They are being attacked by a neighboring army, a neighboring nation called the Assyrian army. So the Assyrian army is laying siege against Israel and God raises up Micah as a prophet to give them a message of doom and hope. (laughs) The book of Micah is weird, you guys, because there are sections of it in which he's like, y'all, it's about to get bad. The Assyrians are going to be victorious. They're going to conquer our nation. Your families are going to be ripped apart. Lots of our brothers and sisters are going to die. This is going to be a very painful part of our history. It's a message of doom. And yet throughout it, it's also a message of hope because he says, although it seems like God must have abandoned you to allow you to go through all of this, God has not forgotten you and he will rescue you from the hand of the Assyrian army. He goes on in chapter number five to say that when the rescuer comes and hear me now, anytime rescue needs to happen, there needs to be a rescuer. Anytime somebody needs to be rescued, there has to be somebody around who's going to do the rescue, rescuing. Go to the beach and go swimming. If you get caught in an undertow and you need rescue, there better be a lifeguard who's nearby to come and save you. If you need salvation, if you need rescue, then somebody has to be the one to provide that salvation and rescue. This is what God is talking about here. He says, listen, when God delivers you, when he brings the rescuer, the sign you're going to be looking for, the thing that's going to help you to know he is the rescuer is that he's going to come from the town of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a tiny little town about 11 kilometers south of Jerusalem. You can go there and visit it today. It's still standing. In fact, some of you have been to Israel and uh, you've probably toured Bethlehem. There's lots of opportunities to see, you know, biblical things there for sure. And uh, it is it's there. And today it's grown up, but in the first century, and certainly 700 years before Christ, it was just a little hamlet, you guys. Archaeologists tell us that in the first century, there were less than a thousand residents in the town of Bethlehem. So it was a weird place for God to choose to be the hometown of the Savior. You with me? Like, could you imagine today if somebody started proclaiming, the Savior of the world is going to be born in Didsbury. (laughs) Didsbury. Black Diamond is going to give us the greatest man that ever lived. No, we would say that's nuts. Not because those places are like worthless, but because they're so small and insignificant on the world stage. There are lots of people in Canada that have never heard of these little towns, much less the rest of the world. This is exactly the type of place that we're talking about with Bethlehem. It was small. It was a little backwater town. It had not a lot going for it. And so when God predicts that the Messiah himself is gonna be born in this tiny town, it was shocking. It was such a surprise Why would God choose Bethlehem of all places for Jesus to be born? Well, Bethlehem was not unknown throughout the Old Testament, okay? It shows up in a few places, some of them fairly important. So for one, Bethlehem is the burial site of Jacob's wife, Rachel. Old Testament patriarch Jacob, his wife Rachel dies, and she's buried in Bethlehem. Claim to fame, I guess. Rachel's buried here, okay? Uh, Bethlehem was also the the setting of the entire story of the book of Ruth. So Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, that whole tale, if you're familiar with that, all of that takes place in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was probably most famous in Jewish history because it was the hometown of David and his family. When Samuel comes along and he's going to anoint David as the king of Israel, it happens right there in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem certainly had some cool things that had happened to it in the past, but y'all, that was a long time ago. And since then Bethlehem had really dwindled. It had shrunk. Nobody thought of Bethlehem as a particularly cosmopolitan or important place. All right. Some of you guys come from small towns in Alberta or Saskatchewan or BC or something like that. And when you tell people where you're from, they're like, yeah, I've never heard of that. And you're like, of course you wouldn't. It's got three horses and one stoplight. Like that's it. That's my town. That was Bethlehem. So when God makes this prediction and prophecy, it's a shock. It's so surprising. See, the most important thing to know about Bethlehem is that it wasn't important. And that is precisely why God chose it. God chose it because it wasn't important. God chose it because it was so unexpected. God chose it because nobody would have ever predicted it. See, from a human uh, uh, perspective, we would have expected that if God's going to cause the Messiah to be born in some city, he's probably going to choose a city like Rome, right? Rome is the ancient political and power center of the entire world. And so if the king of kings is going to be born, he's going to be born in the city of Rome, obviously, except he wasn't. Okay, well, well, you know, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to teach his people incredible things. He's going to say things that no one else has ever said. His teachings are going to transform humanity. So we might expect him to be born in a city like Athens, which is the philosophical and intellectual center of the ancient world, right? Nope. All right. All right. Well, Jesus was a Jew. So maybe he was going to be born in Jerusalem. That's the heart of the Jewish nation. It is the home of the Jewish temple. So if he's going to be born, surely he's going to be born in the holy city, right? No. God chose in his own sovereign providence to choose the town that nobody would have expected. He chooses the unlikeliest place for the Messiah to be born to the unlikeliest family using the unlikeliest story of contraception ever so that he could effect the most unlikely plan of rescue that we have ever heard here's the truth god always chooses the unlikely to accomplish the impossible always he chooses the unlikely to accomplish the impossible You'll find this page to page, cover to cover in the scriptures. The unlikely are the ones that God uses. Now, why does God do it this way? Why not work through the power structures that already exist? Why not use a charismatic man? Why not use a beautiful woman? Why not use a wealthy power couple? Why not use a politically connected family? Why does he always choose the, the overlooked and the insignificant to accomplish his plans? The Apostle Paul tells us 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verses 27 to 29. This is what it says. God has chosen things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. God says, man, you guys crack me up down there. Like you are so you think you're so smart. You think you got it all figured out. You don't even know why you yawn. It's 2023 and scientists cannot tell us for sure why we yawn. God's like, I'm proud of you for everything you've accomplished, everything you've invented, all of my universe that you've discovered. It's pretty great. But let me tell you something, you got a long way to go. It says God chooses the things of this world that are considered foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chooses things that are powerless to shame those who think they are powerful. God chooses the things despised by this world. Things counted as nothing at all and he uses them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Why does God use unlikely things? So that nobody can take the credit for them. Christ was born in Bethlehem, not in Rome, so that Caesar could never say, even the son of God had to come through my empire. Christ was born to a virgin named Mary, so that Joseph would never say, that's my boy that grew up to became the Messiah. Jesus was placed in a spare manger so that no craftsman could ever say my handiwork was good enough for the Messiah himself. Like y'all, if it's good enough for God's nursery, it's good enough for you. Come over to my shop this Wednesday. We'll get you set up. Okay. No, think about it. Who are the people that first came to acknowledge Jesus and to worship him? It wasn't the scribes. It wasn't the religious leaders of his day. They had the book of Micah memorized. They knew the answer by heart. Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. And yet when he showed up, they were nowhere to be found. It was the, the Magi, the pagans from the East who were 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 simply following a star. They didn't even know where they were going or exactly what they were looking for. And yet they were the ones who showed up to worship the Christ child. God always uses the unlikely in order to accomplish the impossible. This is the way he's always done it. When you go back to the Old Testament, you see this pattern again and again. When God was choosing which of the 12 sons of Jacob, we talked about Jacob and his wife, Rachel earlier, he had 12 sons and God is choosing which of those 12 sons is going to be the, the lineage of his Messiah. And he didn't choose the oldest son, Reuben. That's what everybody would have expected because that's how family rights were passed in the first century. He didn't choose the priestly son, Levi. He didn't choose the favorite son, Joseph. He chose Judah. Who's Judah? I don't know. He's one of the middle kids. He kind of got lost in the shuffle. It was not who you would have expected to be the granddaddy of the Messiah. When he was ready to anoint a king over Israel, he chose David, who was the smallest and the youngest of all of Jesse's children. In fact, if you're familiar with the story, this is one of the funniest details in the entire Bible. I love this story so much. When it comes time for one of Jesse's sons to be anointed as king, Jesse gathers up all of his kids except David. He's like, We all know it ain't going to be him. So he said, David, you stay here. Watch over the house. Your brothers and I are going to go handle some business. So he takes all the older boys, leaves his youngest at home because there's no way he's going to be king, brings the older boys to the prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel's like, no, 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 no. Do you have another son? Like you're hiding somewhere? And he's like, "Well, kind of." Samuel says, "Go get that boy." So he goes and he brings David. And the second Samuel sees him, he says, "Yep, he's the one." God always chooses the unlikely. He always chooses the overlooked, the insignificant, the one that nobody would have chosen. That is what he uses time and time again. Hey, when uh, little David was going to go up against Goliath, when this tiny little soldier was going to go to battle against this undefeated man of war, God didn't give him a shield and armor and a spear and a machine gun. (laughs) He let David take out Goliath with a slingshot for goodness sake. All right. When Jesus chose his followers, he didn't select the priests and the Pharisees. He chose fishermen and tax collectors. When it came time to feed thousands of people on a hillside, Jesus didn't go find a rich businessman in the city and invite him to sponsor the catering for that day's lunch. (laughs) He found a little boy who had a brown bag lunch and he used it to do the impossible time. And again, God chooses the unlikely in order to accomplish his plans. When he needed somebody to be the missionary that would spread the gospel and plant churches all over the Mediterranean region, he chose Saul, the guy who for the last 10 years had been the greatest persecutor of the church. God always chooses the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. My friends, I hope you are picking up what I am putting down this morning because if he can use them, he can use you. This room is full of people that feel like Bethlehem. Small, insignificant, inadequate, ill-equipped. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Oh, my sister, she's Rome. She's powerful and rich and she's got it going on my dad, you know, he was Athens. He was so smart. And I don't know, I just didn't inherit the smarts from my dad and all the rest of my family. They're so religious. They're like Jerusalem, you know, it's just like, it all comes so easy to them. And I don't feel like I am any of those cities. I'm just like Bethlehem. Congratulations. You are the type of person that God will use. God will not use Rome. God will not use Athens. God won't even use Jerusalem he will use the Bethlehems and the Judeas and the small and insignificant overlooked people like me and you to accomplish his great and wonderful plans in the world. This is wonderful news for me and for you. You say, you know what? My past disqualifies me from God using me. No, 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 no. You say, oh, I know God wants me to talk to my friend about my faith, but I don't have the answers. Great. In fact, it's usually the people who think they have the answers that make the worst evangelizers in the world. Are you with me? You say, oh, I'm new to my faith. I'm open to the idea of God using me, but I just got saved last month. There's no way God's gonna use me now. I gotta put in the time. I gotta grow. I gotta prove myself to God. No way. God uses unlikely people just like you. People who recently got saved. People who recently got delivered. People who recently got divorced. People who recently went through a season of depression. People who were recently told they were nothing. These are the types of people that God uses every single time. Why? So that nobody will boast in his presence. So that none of us can claim the credit for what God has done. All we need to do is what Bethlehem did. That is to make room for Jesus. That's it. If you said, God, I don't... I don't feel like I have a lot to offer you. Like I got a, I got a cave out back and like a, a spare feeding trough, which is what a manger is. It's like the best I can give you right now. But if you want it, it's yours. My heart doesn't seem like much and my past is a mess, but God, if you want it, it's yours. I'll make room. You can come in. You can make your home here in my heart, in my life. And if you would make room, just like Bethlehem did, you would see the power of God displayed among you you would no longer see yourself as insignificant. You would see yourself as chosen by God for his good plans and his purposes. Now, look, this truth that I'm sharing with you today, it's super important. And it's not just important in the like, rah, rah, you can do anything. God can use even you. You know, I mean, yes. And amen to all of that. It's very true. But the reason that this pattern This way of God working his MO in our world. The reason it's so very important, choosing the unlikeliest in order to accomplish the impossible is because this pattern finds its ultimate fulfillment in our salvation. In our salvation, God chose the unlikeliest method possible to accomplish the impossible. He chose Bethlehem according to his sovereign grace He chooses us according to his sovereign grace, not because there's something wonderful about us, not because we deserve it, but because we are his children and he has mercy and grace and love for each one of us. Think about it like this. This is, I mean, when we talk about God doing through Jesus, like the most unlikely thing imaginable, I want you to track with what we read there in Micah chapter number five. We might even put Micah five back on the screen. You'll notice here in this passage, there are several things that are said about Jesus. So he's going to be born in the village of Bethlehem. And it's like, yeah, cool. That's where Jesus was born. So it feels like the plan is on track, right? And then he's going to become a ruler. He's going to lead people. He's going to have strength. Yes. Amen. We see all that. He's going to lead in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. Yes, absolutely. That's true of Jesus for sure. It says that he will be highly honored around the world and he will be the source of peace. Well, that is where things get a little weird when you track what happens in the Gospels. Because it seems like the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be this very public, charismatic, powerful leader. He's going to conquer the world in his own way. Everybody's going to bow the knee and worship him. And yet, before any of that can happen, he's arrested. And he's put on trial. He's falsely convicted of crimes he never committed. He's nailed to a cross between two common thieves and he dies in one of the most ignoble deaths that a person could ever have. What happened? God's plan seems to have gone completely off the rails. This is not what Micah was predicting, right? Except it's exactly what Micah was predicting. Because the way in which Jesus is going to be honored among all people around the world. The way in which he becomes the source of our peace is through his sacrificial death on the cross for each one of us. It is because Jesus died. It is because my sins were nailed to the cross with him. It is because he was risen from the grave that I have eternal life. It is all the work of God. It is all his mercy and grace present in my life. He deserves every ounce of the glory for it because he is the only one that could have made it happen. He chose an impossible path to accomplish impossible things. And man, I am incredibly thankful to be included in any of that. Look at the way Ephesians chapter number two, verses eight and nine puts it. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. Why? There's that phrase again. So that none of us can boast about it. Apparently God is really not a fan of us boasting. Okay. Actually, you know what? There is a time in in first Corinthians chapter number one, verse 31, God says, let me tell you, Paul says, if you want to boast, boast in the Lord. Listen, what was Bethlehem boasting about long time ago? Somebody really important died here. What was Bethlehem boasting about? Nothing. They had nothing. They were nothing. Everybody overlooked them. They were small. They were insignificant. The most important thing you could say about them is that they were not important. And yet that's exactly who God chose to be the hometown of the savior. Who were they boasting in? Wasn't themselves. It was the Lord and what he had done. Who do we have to boast in? It's not ourselves. It's the Lord. God deserves the credit and the honor and the glory, not just for what he did at Christmas, but the incredible way in which he did it yeah. using unlikely people like me and you to bring about the most wonderful thing that ever happened in history if you're here this morning and you say you know what i felt a lot like bethlehem overlooked and insignificant people have said a lot of bad things about me i've even come to believe them myself my past is a wreck. My future is uncertain. And I know I need God. Otherwise, I'm never going to get out of this mess. If that's the place that you find yourself in today, all you have to do is make room to say yes, to invite Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. If you ask him to forgive you, he will. If you ask him to come into your heart, he will. If you ask him to give, if you, ask him to give you a fresh start, he promises that he will. So with every head bowed and eye closed, if, you, if that's you and you say, oh, I need that. I'm desperate for it today you can repeat this simple prayer between you and God in your heart. Dear Jesus, today I receive you as my savior. Thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for giving me a clean slate and a fresh start because you love me. I don't feel like I'm much, God, but I give all of me to you. And I pray like Bethlehem, you could use me to do something wonderful in the world pray this in the name of Jesus, my savior. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, maybe for the very first time, I want to celebrate with you. And in a moment, we're going to share with you some ways that we can help you in this journey of walking with God. For those of you guys that maybe that wasn't your moment, or you've already prayed that prayer, you have a relationship um, with God. I want to challenge you again this Christmas to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep him as the center of your family celebrations. Keep him as the center of your calendar uh, focus. Like make sure that Christ is the reason for this season and it will become your favorite time of the year. Now, I wanna shift gears for a moment because we spent a lot of time this morning talking about Jerusalem, uh, talking about Bethlehem, sorry. We're talking about Bethlehem near the city of Jerusalem. And it really struck me that Bethlehem, this Small, insignificant city that gave us the most wonderful gift we've ever received in the world. It's having a rough go of it today. Bethlehem is, of course, in Israel. It's a part of the territories known as the West Bank, and it is the epicenter of the conflict that's going on in that section of the world right now. Bethlehem, the home of Christmas, two weeks ago, canceled Christmas. No Christmas celebrations there. They're not accepting tourists, obviously. There's no Christmas trees, no carols, nothing. Everything is about staying safe and hoping that the war will end. So it struck me as I was kind of concluding this message that like, it would be a real tragedy for us to celebrate Bethlehem and how good it's been and how wonderful it is that God used it to provide the savior to us and not to spend time praying for that region this morning. And then God reminded me of what the Scripture says, Psalm one twenty-two, verse six. There's a command: pray for peace in Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. This is a really important verse, and I think it's something that we as Christians need to do. And so we're going to take just a couple of minutes this morning, and we're going to pray over the people that live in that area. You say, "Oh, Dan, are we praying for the Israelites or the Palestinians?" Yes. Are you advocating for a one state solution or a two state solution? No. We're praying for peace. We're praying for peace. Listen, we live in an age in which you are expected to have an opinion on everything. You got to be able to articulate who's right and who's wrong and what should happen and all that. Listen, my guess is none of you went to school for like foreign affairs or Middle Eastern history. Most of us have no clue what's really going on over there. What should or shouldn't happen this way or that. Like all human affairs, there are things that need to be addressed and fixed on both sides of the issue. Our command is to pray for peace. Our command is not to come up with solutions. That's for other people to decide. But me, I'm going to pray that there would be peace in that region this Christmas time. So we're going to take about 60 seconds. Quiet in the room. I want you to pray to God on behalf of the people of Israel and Palestine and other areas of the world that are under conflict right now. Remember what the scripture says, Micah 5, he will be the source of peace. Let's pray that the Prince of Peace would be manifest around the world this Christmas season. God, the announcement from the angels about the birth of Jesus was peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom God's favor rests. Today, there's a lot of conflict, a lot of war, a lot of violence and death around the globe. And so in this Christmas season, I'm praying that our hearts would be united together And God, we would seek the peace of Jerusalem. God, we would seek the peace of Palestine. We would seek the peace of the Middle East. We would seek the peace of Africa. We would seek the peace of Asia and Europe and South America and North America. God, I pray for Antarctica, wherever people live, may there be peace on earth and goodwill among people. Why? Because Christmas is the announcement that your favor really does rest on us. Thank you for that promise. God, I pray that you would do the miraculous through the unlikely means of your people praying and seeking peace in your name. We love you. We thank you in advance for answering this prayer by faith and we offer it in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen and amen.